Okay, take your Bibles and turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This will be the second lesson in this series, Made Nigh by the Blood of Christ. This will be part two. And I tell you what, you can't uh, think of as a sinner a, a more encouraging and comforting truth than what the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, sets forth uh, for these Gentile believers that he wrote to at Ephesus. But in reality, it stretches not only to the Jew, but to all God's elect in every generation. See, that's the thing. All of us are by birth, by nature, by practice, and by choice in the same shape. All of us by nature, even though he wrote specifically to these Gentiles and you who were dead in trespasses and sin, he wasn't just implying that the Gentiles were dead in trespasses and sin, but the reality is that all men and women, without exception, all of us, both Jew and Gentile, are dead, born spiritually dead, alienated from God, enemies in our minds by wicked work, separated from God, and uh, uh, without hope in this world. And that's what he's pointing out to you and to me. And so, yeah, I, I was sitting there and I was going back over my notes this morning and I, I changed the introduction up and I, I had a few thoughts that popped into my mind. And one of the things uh, that, that becomes extremely clear to you if you spend any time looking at this second chapter is that throughout this entire section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul is calling on these believing justified, and we have to keep that in mind. I, you know, that, he's not writing to folks that are lost here. You do realize these epistles, even though they do have implications and they do have words that God uses to call out his elect in every generation to, these letters were written to believers, were written to those who had at least outwardly with their mouth professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and had probably and presumably followed our Lord Jesus Christ in believers' baptism, identifying themselves with the true church of God. And so he's calling on these who have believed, these Gentiles who are justified, these people who are indeed saints of God, separated, set apart, sanctified by God. He's calling on them to remember. In other words, call to mind what you previously were. Look at verses 1. We'll just read it. I mean, I know it's a lengthy section, but this, this is so important. Look at verse 1 through 12. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that we being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in this world. <clears throat> you think, I don't like thinking about those kind of things or what I, were, what I was. I, it, it's a good thing to think and consider your past. You know, it's just our nature to consider ourselves to be something more than what we actually are. And we listen, folks, we should never, never forget, never, where we were when God, by his mercy and by his grace, sought us out. I mean, you think about it. Think of our various states in life where we were all at. Yeah, whether, whether we were ungodly sinners like the Gadarene demoniac or religious sinners like Saul of Tarsus. Who sought who? Uh-huh. What do the scriptures teach us? But here's something else. Not only is it a good thing for us to remember, but it's a humbling thing for us to remember. I always keep this verse in mind. Isaiah 51, verse 1, the prophet says, Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Now, again, you have to understand there's none that seeks after God, Right? And so if anybody, as those that are fallen after righteousness and those that are seeking the Lord, the Lord sought them first. You do understand that. He says, now, those that follow righteousness, those that are seeking the Lord, do what? Look unto the rock whence you were hewn in the hole of the pit from which you were dead. I always think about Romans chapter 9, of the same lung. Huh? Of the same lung. The same lung of, 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 of humanity. God determined to save some, determined to condemn others. I know that sounds cruel and unusual. And to the natural mind, it says, I wouldn't serve a God that... that that's that way. Well, that's just the way the scriptures portray him. I, I can't get that out of my mind. The children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. So before anything was considered, what did God do? He set his love on somebody. Huh? It, wasn't, it wasn't him seeing something in me. Is before any good or any evil had been done, before I was ever born, before I was ever considered, what? God loved me. Loved me where? In Christ, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A New Testament passage that brings this same truth to bear would be Paul's words to those at Corinth. He said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, For who maketh they to differ from another? Or what do you have that you didn't receive? Now, if you didst receive it, why do you glory as if you didn't receive it? And I tell you, Paul understood the reality 
of this in his own life. Listen to him. He says, for I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see that? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Did he, did, he, did he work for the Lord? Yes, indeed. But then he turns right around, and what does he say? Yet not I. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And I thank God for his testimony of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 through 16. He said, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me. You see that? I thank Christ Jesus my Lord who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. How be it for this cause... I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. In other words, Paul says, if God saved me, a blasphemer, one who was injurious, one who hated God and hated God's people, there's not one of God's elect in whatever situation or circumstance they find themselves in. Do you know what? God can't set them free. That's our comfort. Now look at our text. Look at verse 13. But now, Ephesians 2 verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. And there it is again. He just keeps emphasizing this over and over. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, where? In Christ, right? He says, but now in Christ Jesus, not in yourselves, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood. Let me read it to you in Young's literal translation. And now in Christ Jesus, you being once afar off became nigh in the blood of Christ. The words that make up this part of this verse sometimes were afar off. I, I, I know I get, I know I spend a lot of time talking about words, but words are so important. This phrase in this verse, sometimes were afar off points our minds back to what we previously were. That word sometimes, it means formerly. Now listen to it. The word sometimes means formerly. The word translated were means being. 
And the word translated far off, I like this. It means a great way off. Far off, literally translated, means a great way off. So put it all, all together. Formerly, you and I, what were we? We were a great way off. Now think about this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, he used this same word in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that story? Remember the, the, the son had went to his father and said, give me what's mine and I'll go my way. And the father gave it to him and he went his way into a far off country. You know the story. And he, he, he lost, spent all, lost all his wealth and began to starve and went to those that were round about and sought to eat what was falling, the husk that were falling from the pig trough. And it says he came to his senses and he said, you know, in my father's home, the servants are better than I am. I'll go back and I'll tell my father I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he gets up and he starts making his way back, going back to his father. And I guarantee you, like, like you and I, I mean, it's a parable. But you think about humanity. When you have something that you're going to deal with, you've got to talk with somebody about, what do you do in your mind? Huh? You ever carry on conversations with yourself and you, you invoke what, how they're going to respond and then you, you come up with your response. And you go, you rehearse it several different ways because there's several different ways you know, the conversation could go. And you, so you, you play both parts is what you do. I don't know how long the parable implies that it takes for him to get back, but all the way back in his mindset, what's he going to do? I'm going to tell my daddy I'm not worthy to be called a son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he's coming back. He says he arose and he came to his father. But now listen to this. But when he was a great, there's, there's the word, when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That's our Lord's attitude toward all his elect. You hear me? I loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, what have I done? <laughs> he drawn him. Yeah, you know, in the Song of Solomon, the, the woman says, draw me, and what will we do? You draw me, we'll run after you. So what's the Lord do? He draws his people to himself. See, Christ's words in this parable make plain what Paul wrote in this, in this passage that we're looking at here in Ephesians. Having been chosen in Christ. Now you think about this. You and me, Gentiles who were alienated from God, who in reality, I mean, you think about the, 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 it was God's sovereign plan and purpose. But in, in that time set from when he, he chose Abraham until he fulfilled the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus our Lord when he cried, it's finished, very few Gentiles came to believe the gospel. I mean, I know people get all worked up. Well, this thing of election shuts people out. Folks, think how many years it was that God dealt exclusively. When he saved just people 
within, except in a few instances, he saved Rahab the harlot, right? He saved Naaman, saved a few more. But for the most part, what did he do? Passed them by. Left them in guilt penalty. Left them in condemnation to their own destruction. That's where we were. They had no covenant promises. They had no gospel. You think about that. Nothing. They heard nothing. But listen, even though you don't hear it, you're still, you're still guilty. That's not fair. Take it up with the Lord of glory. Haven't been chosen in Christ, redeemed by Christ, called in faith to Christ and called to true repentance. The Gentiles who were alienated from God's law, did not have the law, were separate and had no right or claim to that piece of property that they're fighting about over there. They could not call themselves God's people. National Israel knew that they were God's chosen people as a nation. They're reconciled to God. Those kind of people, they're made nigh. You know what that word made nigh means? Here, here it is. Here's the same exact word. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be, here's the word, might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the same word that's used here, made nigh. Are we made nigh? The righteous, we made the righteousness of God where? In him, in our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we talking about here? This is reconciliation. This is reconciliation. You think about it, they were without God, you and me too. But now in Christ, what are they? They're brought near. We'll talk about it in just a minute, but the Gentiles, think about it. Even if they converted to Judaism, they were not allowed into the places that natural-born Jews were, even in the court of the temple, ever. It was not permissible. So this involves both the reconciliation of the Gentile to the Jew, as well as the reconciliation of the the Gentile and the Jew to God. Because, listen, the only way the Jew was saved, same way we're saved. How do we know? Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 4. Matter of fact, I always think about it like this. Abraham, when, when did the, the Jewish nation, as far as the statement Jew, Jewish or Israel, come into existence? Hmm? <laughs> Isaac, Isaac couldn't even make that claim. Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau, right? And Jacob, the schemer, God changed his name to what? Israel. So two generations before, Abraham, who was by birth, what? A Gentile, he was born in Ur of Chaldee, 
He had no Jewish lineage as far as ties or connection. He couldn't look back through his lineage and say, we have one Father, even God. Like those Jews did in John chapter 8. What could he appeal to? God sent him out of that country. Get up and get out. I'll send you to a land. And he promised him a land. But we know from Hebrews that Abraham's concern was not about the land down here, which he never actually owned. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker, according to the book of Hebrews, was what? God itself. He was looking for a heavenly Jerusalem. Same thing you and I are looking for. And see, all of this is due to the fact that Christ, by his sacrifice, satisfied God's, God's law and justice on behalf of a multitude of guilty, hell-deserving sinners, both Jew and Gentile. God's reconciled to his elect, and his elect are reconciled to him on the ground of Christ's righteousness, freely imputed by God's grace, and rested in by true God-given faith. We're not going to read it because I don't have time, but write down 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. You ought to memorize those verses. You should. Yeah. God was in Christ reconciling who? The world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Now, who is that? Oh, it included those in national Israel. But who else did it include? All those of every other nation, kindred, tongue, and people that God had determined to save before the foundation of the world. See, it's on this ground, Christ, his blood, his righteousness, his accomplished death, that every believer, Jew and Gentile, has an eternal right to come boldly to the holiest of all, come into the very presence of God. Look at verse 14 through 16 now. For he is our peace. Who is? Church membership. Nope. Baptism. No. Good works. No, because he's already said, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works. Not of works. What's our peace? Christ is. I mean, what, do you, what do you always tell his disciples? My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives peace. And see, Christ is our peace in the sense that he brought in the only hope and cause of peace between God and sinners. The only hope of spiritual peace and fellowship between believers as well. The only way you and I have any union one to another is not because of family lineage or ties. Most of us are have various things that are important to us. We have different employments. We have different statuses in life. That's just the way the things are in this world. But all those things, you know what happens? They all pass away because of our tie one to another in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always amazed me how the... the, the the kindred spirit that exists between men and women who have absolutely nothing in common, but the most important thing of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that, isn't that unique? And you can tell. I mean, I have a lot of guys and gals out there in this world that I know and have known for decades that are reformed, Kenny. You do too. 
that claim they believe the same thing I used to believe before the Lord saved me. And when you sit down and you talk with them, and you enter into a conversation with them about these things that are life and death important, you can tell the difference. You feel the relationship. Kind of like Bill said one time, he, uh, a, a pastor down there of a local Reformed church got in touch with him and wanted to, him and one of his elders wanted Bill to go eat lunch with him, and he did. And they were having just a wonderful Bill said it was a great time together. He said, we sat there, ate, and we talked, talking about Christ's accomplished death and redemption through his blood. And it came up, this idea about everybody else, all these other religions. And you know as well as I do, if a man or a woman has not rested in Christ's blood, his righteousness has not heard this gospel that declares this righteousness alone is only ground hope or cause of salvation, they believed another gospel. They're resting in another Christ. If the Christ that they're preaching down the road down there wants to and can't and has tried and won't, is that your Christ? Huh? It's a different one. Because this Christ that we serve, what did he do? He came to save his people from their sin. Did he do it? You bet your bottom dollar he did. And when that came up, the guy looked at, at Bill and said, well, what, are you saying that Armenians aren't our brother? Those who believe in free will are not our brother? And Bill said, that's what the scriptures teach. And he said it was like you threw a cold blanket over the, over the thing. See, that's where the rubber meets the road, right there. If you think that anybody can be saved, friend, family, or foe, apart from this gospel preached, heard, believed, understood in, I guarantee you're going to get your feelings hurt with this gospel preached to you. And God alone is the only one that can, can soothe your troubled heart, mind, and soul. I can't. Bill can't. None of us can. We can tell you the truth. We can point you to, to the scriptures. The only one that can give you that peace of mind that lets you know, we've got to determine that. You say, well, that's not our place to make that kind of judgment. Look, look, how are you going to know who to share the gospel with? Because <laughs> that's, that's our goal, isn't it? Isn't that what you, that, isn't that what you're, <laughs> as a child of God, isn't that what your purpose is? All of us? This is, surely this is the gospel ministry here, but it's not mine, it's ours. It's his, actually. We come together here so that I, as the pastor teacher who himself is learning and growing in grace and knowledge of the truth, what can I do? I can prepare all of us for the work of the ministry. <laughs> you say, oh no, I'm a nurse, I'm a this, I'm a that, no. If you're one of his, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his, which means what are you called to? Uh-huh. All of us. Paul said this, For we are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, 
And that's not talking about water baptism. Many of you have been baptized into Christ. It put on Christ. That's where the, the church Christ gets that thing about water baptism. That that's when, you, when you're put into the family of God. It's not what that's teaching. I'm not talking about water baptism. We're immersed in Christ by God the Holy Spirit. We're taken in a sense. Now, we've all, we're always in Christ, but we're put into the body of Christ. When we come to true faith, true repentance, we, we, we're in the body of Christ part of the body of Christ. We're exhibited to the world as the body of Christ. And that's what he said, me as a Jew and you as a Gentile, what are we all baptized into? The same exact body of Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. See, that's who the promise was made to, Abraham's seed, Christ. And heirs according to the promise. So notice what he says. Having abolished, he says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down. Notice what he's done. He's broken down the middle wall, middle wall of petition between us. See, there used to be a dividing line between the Jew and the Gentile having abolished in the flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for the making himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. This middle wall of petition, it refers to that wall in the temple that separated the outer court of the temple, which was called the court of the Gentiles, from the inner court, which the only ones who had the right to go into that inner court of the temple were who? Jews, just the Jews. And this wall was symbolic of that enmity mentioned in verse 15 between the Jews and the Gentiles. But Paul tells us here what? Christ in his flesh, what did he do? He abolished the enmity. He took down that separation. This refers to that abolishment of what? The Mosaic law. In its entirety, when Christ offered up his sinless humanity on the altar of his deity in order to establish the only righteousness based upon which God could be just to justify the ungodly. And the establishment of this righteousness in time, you know what it meant? It meant the end. You hear me? The end of that Mosaic law and that whole economy. Into that Mosaic law, what did it do? It brought the Jew and the Gentile together in the sense that the gospel became readily available not only to the Jew, but who else now does the gospel go to? To the Gentile as well. Listen to this. Listen to these verses. Paul says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That's talking about his natural brethren. But I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that does what? That believes. 
Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, both Jew and Gentile, we call on him, we're saved. Look, look, look back at our text again. Look at that last line of verse 15. So is in italic. But he says this, of what Christ did, making peace. He didn't make peace possible. What did he do? He made peace. It's just so important. That last line of verse 15, when you connect it with verse 16, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, refers to the church, to the body of believers, those redeemed by Christ and justified based on Christ's righteousness alone. Paul's referred in verse 16 to the enmity that exists between all men and women by nature, both Jew and Gentile and God. His point here is that in his incarnation, his birth, and by his performing the work of redemption, Christ has reconciled all those God the Father chose, both Jew and Gentile, all those who believe God's promise of salvation conditioned on Christ alone, both Jew and Gentile, he's reconciled both of them to God. And this is what's so important to you and I. Christ alone satisfied God's law and his justice, and he established by his obedience unto death, by his accomplished work, the only righteousness that removes the enmity that existed between God and his elect, both Jew and Gentile. So both the Jew and the Gentile are saved, they're justified, they're sanctified, and they're sure for heaven based on the same exact thing. There was never one Jew saved by the law. Never has been, never will be. If there had been a law given, possible, that could have given life, righteousness would have came out. It wouldn't have cost his dear son. There's only one way of redemption. There's only one way of reconciliation. And here's what's so important to you and me. The Gentile believer is no less saved because that's what they implied. We know that from the book of Galatia. That's what the Judaizers came in. Except you be circumcised after the law of Moses, what? You can't be saved. As if somehow being a Jew nationally made the difference between life and death. So Paul tells these Gentile believers as well as you and me, the Gentile believers no less saved, no less holy, no less fit for heaven than the Jewish believer that rest in Christ. And together, what, are they, what do we all make up? One new man. What's that? The body of Christ, his church. So the conclusion of this whole thing is this. Christ, by his incarnation and his redemption, redemptive work in his flesh, he broke down that great barrier that stood between the Jew and the Gentile. What was that? What was, the, what was the barrier between the Jew and the Gentile? Here it is. The law of commandments and ordinances. You think about it. That law that God gave, and it listen, the, don't, don't go out here and anybody that's watching this, don't think that this pastor or this church or any that believe like we do hold the law of God in contempt. We, we love his law, do we not? It's holy just, perfect, and good. Just like Paul said. 
But folks, it was a system that set those Jews apart and distinguished them and made them a separate nation. And folks, that's what kept them separated from the Gentiles. And in fulfilling, now think about this, we studied this in Hebrews, in fulfilling that Mosaic law, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what he did to that barrier? Listen to you. He rendered it meaningless. Listen to you. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Now, there's nothing, Paul said there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with what? I, I, I can only remember in my lifetime one man that told me he had kept the law perfectly. Even a fool knows they can't keep that law. Now, they might not admit it, but they, they can't do it. You can't do it. Listen, we have the Spirit of God in us. And I can, I can assure you, not one of us out there or your pastor sitting up here, anybody else you know, even with, by God, none of us have kept the law. We cannot. For the law that for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope—that's what, that's what all it was about. What did the law? It issued us and instructed them and pushed those Jews where to Christ. By the which we draw nigh. There's that same word. We're made nigh by the blood. We draw nigh how? By the law? No, by the better hope. You see the difference? Not by works of righteousness, which we've done what? We draw nigh by the better hope. And insomuch as not without an oath he was made a priest, for this, the, those priests were made without an oath, but this was with an oath by him that said, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's that? That's Christ. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for who? For them. I pray not, our Lord said in John 17, I pray not for the world, but who do I pray for? I pray for them you gave me out of the world. He makes intercession for them. For such an high priest became us. It was necessary for this high priest, who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than heaven, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered him up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmities. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forever. Amen. You think about this, and we'll close with this. In, in both doing this, Christ broke down the barrier that stood between God and all his elect. But Christ, this is the thing, he brought the Jew and the Gentile who were at enmity with one another. What did he bring them to? He brought them 
to amnesty, peace one with another. How? Through the blood of his son. Paul a Jew, Peter a Jew, who'd they love? They love the elect of God, whether Jew or Gentile. We'll stop right there and we'll come back. We'll pick up with verse 17 next. You're dismissed the worship. I appreciate your presence.